What's good, y'all? Y'all tuning in to the Swish Beats Podcast. It's your boy Demo here at it again, giving you a new episode for this week. On this week's episode, we got a very special guest, assistant coach for the UNC Greensboro Spartans women's basketball team and host of the One Last Thought podcast. We got Mr. Ito Singer on the line. Coach, how you doing today? I am good. Demo, can I hire you to do my intro moving forward, please? That was uh, that was as warm of a welcome as I've ever had before, so I appreciate you so much. Oh, yeah, no, no problem. Whatever, whatever you need. I'm, you know, I've been doing <laughs> audio. I appreciate that. <laughs> I've been doing radio, audio, dating back to my time in college, so something I'm very comfortable oh. with. But yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk some basketball. Yeah, man. I, I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. You know, you've had a busy season thus far with your basketball team. And it's the holiday season, so I, I know you're also trying to spend time with the family. So, you know, much appreciated, Ido. Of course. Anytime. So uh, I just wanted to start off. Uh, you have your own podcast, uh, The One Last Thought One. The One Last Thought podcast. Can you uh, provide some insight on what that podcast is about? Yeah, I'd love to. So it's a it's a project of passion that I started uh, back in July. The idea for it started a couple of months before that. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to create a platform for other people, and it doesn't have to necessarily just be the John Gordons of the world or the Tim Elmores of the world. You know, the ones that we listen we hear from all the time. I wanted to create a platform for people to share their best advice, their best experience or life lesson that they've learned and share that with future generations. And so I only ask people one question and I say, if you had one life lesson that you can share with future generations, what would that be? And so we record these answers and what I do with it is I will take an answer from a man and a woman that have never met before probably and maybe speaking about roughly the same subject and I'll intertwine their answers together. I'll cut pieces of each answer, sound bites, and I'll just intertwine that into a whole new conversation that reinforces each other's uh, point of view. And so that's the podcast. It's usually 10 minutes or less, and it's on a really broad uh, spectrum of subjects. So it can range from anything, from anything motivational or something that uh, you can do on a daily basis that will improve your lifestyle or your relationships or how to heal better, things like that are really actionable and easy to digest that I feel are uh, things that people need to hear. And the people who are sharing come from all walks of life. Anyone can share. And so that's my, uh, that's my podcast. It's been running for about three months or four months now, I'm sorry. And uh, it's been, it's been so widely accepted and, and um, regarded that I'm, I'm so proud of it and I can't wait to keep going into 2020 with it. Yeah, man, that's that's really awesome. I uh, really like it's It's so simple, yet so, I guess, insightful that that's something that a lot of people would, you know, just tune in to listen to. You know, you said it's 10 minutes or less. It's very digestible, yeah. really easy. It's something that you could keep going with for yeah. ho- however long you want to take it. Uh, I'm definitely going to check that out. Uh, You can find that on all podcasting platforms as well. All podcasting platforms, 29 episodes out. You can literally sit down and binge from 1 to 29 and spend less than an hour. 
All right, cool. Listeners, if you guys need some podcasts on your commute to work, that's definitely one to check out. Again, that's the One Last Thought podcast. Now, Ido, you were talking about, you know, people's journeys through your podcast on the, on the on their walks of life, you know, and your particular walk of life. You know, you've pretty much been there in the basketball scene from, you know, now you're coaching, but you used to play. But as far as college coaching and you know coming up and being where you're at now at unc greensboro can you talk about how much experience you've had prior to where you're at and you know how much success you've had to come across and experience before getting to your current position yeah um lots of experience i I always like to tell that my basketball journey started when i was seven years old and my mom took me to this local uh, YMCA and uh, there was a basketball class that was taking place and my very first uh, claim to fame on the basketball court was gra- getting a pass taking about 17 steps without dribbling and throwing the ball over the backboard so <laughs> that's how my journey started very humbly very um, very much uncoordinated but going through and learning the game as a player being fortunate enough to play professionally right before the age of 17 uh, over in Israel, which is where I grew up, uh, allowed me to not only be around some special players and learn from them, but also be under some very special coaches. And I take a lot of the influences that I've learned from the European style and also through a lot of American and, and other European players that came through that I played with, and I tried to apply that into my coaching. And my coaching journey started with uh, my coaching journey started with the younger ages with uh, working with middle school and and AAU teams and going up through the high school ranks and then um, working a lot in Division Three. I spent a few years in Division Three over in Massachusetts. Spent a little bit of time as a director of operations in Division One, and then uh, took a took about a one year break uh, when my when my twin girls were born and wanted to spend the first year at home with them and. Then coming back after that, I was fortunate enough to be hired as a head coach in uh, Division II NAIA school. Then after that, I ended up at UNC Greensboro. And so a wide variety of experiences at many different levels. And I think each experience had such a valuable impact on how I am as a coach, as a leader, how I approach players, how I approach the game. I'm trying to take a little bit from each level and trying to apply it. And so... It's all valuable. It was all uh, a way to prepare me for the Division One level, and I'm I'm currently loving it. It's my second year at UNCG, and uh, we're doing we're doing well so far. So hopefully we can uh, we can keep that rolling. But yeah, the journey was impactful from from start to uh, to where I am right now. What position did you play uh, coming up playing? <laughs> so I'm I'm six five on the best day. If I can stand up straight and my back doesn't hurt, so I'm about <laughs> six five. I played power forward, believe it or not, professionally. I um, I was matched up against 6'10", 6'9", 6'11". So I, I wasn't there for size. I was there for what I could do with my with my speed at the time and my footwork and my understanding of, uh, of how to position yourself for the rebound. I had one super skill, couldn't really score, but I could, I could rebound with the best of them. So, so that was my position, 6'5", power forward. I was Draymond Green before Draymond Green was out there. Ah, yes, of course, the undersized <laughs> power forward that is rugged, yeah. that does the, does the dirty work. I love it. Yeah. I love yeah. it. 
<laughs> so uh with that said you know being being a big man or having a, mm -hmm. a big man's nature and with your coaches coming up is there anything that they would tell you being an undersized big that would help give you an advantage absolutely they would say that you cannot be beat and i took that mentality to everything i did in the game for example when they told me that i could not be beat I said to myself, okay, that means nobody can box me out. I did not allow to be boxed out. So if you were trying to put a body on me, I would do everything in my power to either make you work as hard as you can to get that position on me, or I would work hard to get around you. I don't care if I was in position to rebound or not. To me, it was a matter of pride. I will not be boxed out. If you were trying to beat me running down the floor, I will not be beat. I'm going to try and run ahead of you. And if I'm running out of gas, I'm going to run out of gas ahead of you so that you don't beat me. So you're on my back. Just that mentality of you are not going to beat me, especially being undersized like I was, I think that contributed to my success more than anything else because I, I couldn't jump over an iPad when I was playing. <laughs> so it's not like I was jumping out of the gym and doing all those things. I beat players with pure competitiveness and my my footwork which was something that i honed ever since i was a little kid i i enjoyed working on it and, and improving that craft and it absolutely um it, i think my footwork got me all my contracts to be honest can you also talk about coming up and playing for maccabi tel aviv well what can you say about the differences in that aspect between the American game and the international game of basketball uh, during the time that you came up playing? So we're talking uh, circa 1995, 96, 97. And um, when we're talking about, uh, we're talking about uh, Maccabi Tel Aviv, I was sitting on the bench. I was not really playing. I was a young 16, 17 year old kid. And uh, we we're talking about a team when I got there at the end of the 95, 96 season, I believe Tom Chambers was on the roster. I was not playing ahead of Tom Chambers. Um, so I was definitely able to sit on the bench during games, but practice with these guys and learn from some amazing coaches and, uh, and get a chance to, to match up with some very, very good players. Like I said, Tom Chambers, trying to guard this guy in practice was my mission every day. Trying to stop this uh, all-star was my mission every day. And so it was, uh, it was a mix between the European style, which at the time was very pick-and-roll driven, a lot of space and pace, um, trying to get an isolation on one side while creating some kind of uh, off, uh, sorry, weak side movement. To, to free up shooters that was mostly the game uh, at that time and everybody could shoot it was it, pretty much one through four could could shoot three which was uh which was the style in europe back when i was playing but when tom chambers came through it was it was bringing more of that pace that phoenix was playing with into into the euro um, into the EuroLeague and into Maccabi Tel Aviv. So it was a combination of both. It was, it was definitely eye-opening for me because I wasn't, I wasn't ready for that kind of pace uh, when I was 17 years old. Yeah, was, uh, I would imagine, you know, being that young, playing against grown men who see the game in ways that you have yet to see it. Yeah. With that said, how much did you try to absorb from the older folks on your team? I 
wish I tried to absorb a little bit more. I don't think my maturity level was where I would want it to be now that I'm looking back in hindsight. I think at that time, what I was trying to do was I was trying to prove that I belong. And so that was manifesting more in the sense of being competitive and less in the sense of understanding why I need to play a certain way. If I could turn back time, I would probably try and learn a little bit more about the why and less about the how. Looking back, I can recall some lessons that I've learned from these older players. I'm, I'm looking at the roster right now because I couldn't remember everybody that was on there. But I'm looking at the roster and there are three that played there that are now coaches. And looking at it, thinking, my goodness, I had three coaches on the floor and three more on the sidelines or four more on the sidelines. It was a lot to learn from. But I can definitely see things that we worked on there that I'm trying to implement with UNCG currently. So I think it had an impact on me. I may not have recognized it at the time, but it definitely impacts how I coach. You said you were a bench player for Maccabee Tel Aviv, and if I'm not mistaken, I see you guys won the championship in 96. Did, yes. Did that championship come with a ring? <laughs> <laughs> no, they did not give us rings at the time. They don't do the rings over there. Uh, they didn't do it at the time. Maybe they do it now. At the time, no. There was a big plate. You get a big plate, the captains raise it up in the air, kind of like the trophies that they do now, the Larry O'Bannon. And then uh, the plate goes in the trophy case. So, no, we did not get to take anything with us that year. Are there, are there any special memories uh, playing overseas? I can imagine uh, being part of an international team such as Maccabee Tel Aviv, you would be traveling all over Europe playing basketball. Any special memories from that time? Absolutely. I, this is one of my favorite stories to tell. This is my, uh, my Manu Ginobili story. Hey, right. all right. <laughs> so in, uh, back in 95, 96, around that time, when we were preparing for the season, there was a, uh, a scrimmage with Kinder Bologna, and he was playing in Italy at the time. He was a young guy. I think we're about the same age, maybe a year apart or six months apart. So at the time, he was coming up, and he was – being considered to be one of the best, if not the best, young, under 20 years old European player in all of Europe. And he, they were coming over to play uh, in Israel. They did this this scrimmage. And so no media, nobody's allowed in, you know how that is. But we're playing, and since it didn't really count for anything, and we were losing by quite a bit at the time, coach calls me in to play with one minute to go. So I go in. He is still on the floor. I know that his sub is about to come in because I see it coming in and sitting there at the, at the table ready to check in. But that happened right after I checked into the game. So we're waiting for the next stoppage. Uh, we miss a shot. We come down the floor. I obviously pick up one of their forwards. But there's a pick and roll situation and Manu has the ball and I get him on the switch. He sees that he has this 17-year-old there in front of him who's never played before. And he takes two steps back, and he kind of clears everybody out of the way, and you know what's coming. So I'm in an ISO situation with Manu. I know he's a lefty, so I'm trying to stick to his left hip, trying to send him to the right, which is what we've been trying to work on all, all week uh, leading up to that. He holds the ball with his right hand, so I'm thinking, okay, I'm sending him where I need to send him. So I open up the right. He takes a dribble with his right hand, and he steals it from himself with his left hand, kind of like a sham god. <laughs> I fly to the right. I'm on the ground. He pulls up right in front of me, swishes the basket, reaches down to help me up, and he goes, nice shot, huh? <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh my god! And, uh, and I go, I go, yeah. And I run back on defense, and I'm sorry, run back on offense, and I want to hide, but I know it's about 45 seconds left to the game, and I kind of play through. He gets subbed out in the next play, and uh, and that's it. That's my Manu story. Oh uh, my Manu, god! <laughs> Manu, put me, Manu put me on my butt when I was 17 years old. To be able to say that you were pretty much dropped, <laughs> crossed. I was embarrassed by Manu for sure. By Manu, before Manu was Manu. Before what we know Manu to be, uh, I don't know whether to say congrats or sorry or. <laughs> but. I was. I'm happy. Looking back at it, I, it's one of, if not my most fond memory from when I was playing. It's not. It's not playing well or grabbing rebounds or having a great matchup. I think it's looking back at moments like that and then watching the guy play in the NBA and go, wow, I've been in his grill for 15 seconds before he put me on my butt. Yeah. <laughs> that is special to me. So, so yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, uh, as we move forward, thank you for that story, Ito. I appreciate it. Uh, as we move forward right now, uh, again, you're the assistant coach for the UNCG Spartans women's basketball team. Can you talk about your current role and what you do to help your players on the day-to-day -day basis uh, for this season and all the time that you've been there? Sure. So I was hired to uh, to fill two main roles. I am the uh, I'm the scout coordinator, so I'm the head of scouts for our program, for our uh, coaching staff, and I am also the post-player coach. So I work with our posts, just basically trying to work on their skill development, making sure that they improve daily. And then for an oversight role, I, uh, I take care of everything that we need for our scouting department. So preparation for games, what that looks like, what the schedule of those uh, scouts will look like, what we want to highlight to our players, how we want to frame it for, to them. And, uh, and how we want to present it to them. So I'm, I'm very, very happy in those roles. I, I feel so much responsibility and, uh, and gravity and towards what we're doing, and, and I love it. So that's, that's my day-to-day -day in a nutshell. Yeah, and, and you've been now, this is your second season with UNCG, yeah. uh, yeah. and I would imagine it's your also your first time first years living in North Carolina. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. We just finished our first year in August. We bought a house. So I moved here uh, ahead of my family, one month ahead of my family last August. Mm -hmm. And we were renting up until this August when we bought our house. So we are officially North Carolina residents and uh, we, we love it here. Moving from Massachusetts, it's a little bit different weather-wise and, uh, you know, different different personalities, different people here. We love the people here. We love everything around. So this is a great opportunity for me, for my family, and we, we love UNCG and everything that uh, that we have around here, right? You know, we know North Carolina. I know North Carolina to be a very basketball-centric state. You know, being there at UNCG and just in North Carolina, does it present itself to be that way? Absolutely. It's it's a hoop state. It is absolutely a hoop state. We have so many schools around here. You can go down the list from from UNC mm -hmm. Chapel Hill to to Duke to UNCG UNC Wilmington Asheville Elon uh, High Point. There are so many schools around here. Uh, A&T right across the the tracks. It's it's a hoop state. There's so much going on here. The ACC Hall of Fame is here. 
There's always tournaments. Michael Jordan was from here. Steph Curry. It is just the place to be. And we feel basketball all the time. It's, it's awesome. If you're a basketball fan, if you're a coach, it's such an immersive location. It, you're, just, you're just surrounded by basketball all the time. That sounds awesome. That sounds yeah. so awesome. I love being surrounded by basketball, watching basketball. <laughs> One of my main things that I love to do, I like to travel to watch basketball games. I was in Italy, Italy and Spain uh, back in March. I was able to go see a FC Barcelona game in uh, oh. in Barcelona. Yeah, so and it was amazing. The atmosphere of the international game is something else. It's something that needs to be experienced for any hoop fan. Absolutely. Even thinking back to playing in Israel, that 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 stadium that we had over there, there's eleven thousand seats. Nobody is sitting down, and the atmosphere is basically when you're there, you are using the back the backrest of the person in front of you as a drum the entire game it's <laughs> like you said there's such an atmosphere there um i've been in i've been in some places in greece when we played when we won and people were throwing coins at us it's serious business so absolutely you have to go out there and experience it and it sounds like you've had a a great experience in Spain. Oh, it was wonderful. Yeah. I mean, not just with the basketball, but with the culture. And yeah, I, I definitely can't wait to go back. And the international game is something that every basketball fan needs to check out live. It's just something that, especially for somebody that has only experienced the American game. I agree. I absolutely agree. So uh, more on North Carolina and your time at UNCG. So currently... Your team, they are eight and four. They are right now. It looks like I'm looking at the Southern Conference standings. Your team's mm -hmm. tied for first right now. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, so doing a really great job. What can you attribute to your team's success so far this year? Our players are amazing. And I'm not just saying that for lip service. A lot of coaches will say that about their players, and that's true. Our players took such a, a root of ownership over the season like I have never seen before from any team that I've ever been involved with. They have decided and envisioned what this is going to look like for them, and then they went out and they executed on that vision. And that's the hardest thing to do. A lot of teams come together at the beginning of the season and say, we want to win all the games. Well, guess what? Everybody else wants to do that too. Nobody comes out and says, we want to lose all the games, be at the bottom of our conference. But to then go out and have a clear vision on how to do it, buy into a new system and go out and execute every day and then fight for your culture and make sure that everybody's on the same page as often as possible. And if not, they're being held accountable internally by the players is something that is hard to find. And that's, where I feel our culture is and is uh, continuing to, to head in that direction. So I give all the credit to them. I think I've taken our coaching and, uh, and made it something that they could buy into and they externalize it. And the results just, uh, you know, they, they just are, are the, the cherry on that pie. It's just, it's just beautiful. It, they're, they're so much fun to work with every day. Now, your team, they're led in scoring by seniors Nadine Solomon, averaging 19.9 points a game, and Tasia Twitty, averaging 13 points a game. 
both shooting ridiculous numbers above 50%. Nadine Solomon, not to mention, she's shooting 45% from three-point range. Astounding. Yep. Um, can you talk about you know, how much of the leadership roles that they've taken upon themselves for the team this year? Absolutely. Uh, I'm happy to talk about that. This is an, an incredible uh, senior class. They, when they were freshmen, they were the youngest team in the nation. So for them to make that four-year turnaround to now being seniors and leading this program is such a beautiful journey to see. Uh, Nadine's been around uh, since her first year. She was leading the, the nation in scoring for all freshmen when she was a freshman. And so her journey is, is a special one for, for UNCG and for herself. She's going to finish this, this career at UNCG with over 2,000 points. She's definitely going to have that jersey retired. I think Tasia the same thing too. Tasia is such a, uh, you know, I was saying that I'm Draymond. I think Tasia is the real Draymond. What she <laughs> does is unreal. She is. She's listed at five ten, maybe. I think she's about five nine or five eight. But she is a brick wall. She will not be moved if she doesn't want to be moved, and she will push people around. She is a great finisher. She has a great mid-range shot, rebounder. She is as tough as nails. Nadine works hard so much. Every day puts up shots. And our entire senior class, you'll see them getting up shots. They're in the gym. They're bought in. They're bringing in the younger players. We have some juniors coming up that are really impactful in this program. Aja Boyd is another one of our forwards. He's doing a phenomenal job as well. They're all so much fun to work with because they just want to get better. It's it's such a joy. Uh, but those two, Nadine and Tasia, uh, best friends on the court, off the court, just just very special, and we're so lucky to have them in this program. That's awesome. Now, yeah. also your team, you guys have three players in the top eight of the conference's leading rebounders in Nadine Solomon, Asia Boyd and Tasia Twitty, you being the post-up coach, the post-player coach, how much yeah. uh, do you emphasize rebounding to this team? We don't work on it as much at all. We would, might work on it, uh, I don't know, once every three or four practices. What we do emphasize is boxing out and being positioned to box out and rebound. We chart that. Every game, they have a uh, post-game report. They know all of their rebounding opportunities and the percentage of those opportunities that they actually were in position to rebound, either by checking behind to make sure that their player isn't crashing, by extending an arm to make sure that they make early contact, or by actually boxing out and winning that box-out uh, matchup. So everything gets charted for them. And, and being competitive, you don't want to have a 65% box out. You want to have 85 or more. So they're competing amongst each other, and, and we have a number that we want to reach every game of uh, percentage of our box out opportunities won. And so that's what we strive for. So this in itself creates an environment where it's unacceptable to not box out. It's unacceptable to allow your player to get an offensive rebound. And so I think this was one of the biggest things that allowed us to to kind of get on the same page. 
Um, Aja and Teja and even Nadine are such natural rebounders too, so we're lucky in that sense. But I think tying everything together, their natural abilities plus our coaching and what we emphasize, that helped us be a very good rebounding team. Do you ever tell them what your coach told you back in your playing days? You will not be beat? In a sense. In a sense. Uh, we talk about it when when we are on offense. We talk about, in, our, in my position, we talk about players who play defense against you can only guard you one way. So, for example, if you're trying to, if you're trying to post up, they can either play you behind, they can fully front you, or they can go three quarters on the high side or, or three quarters on the low side. But if they choose to play you a certain way, let's say they're denying the high side and they get an arm across and over you and you can only pass to the baseline hand. If you then lock them in like that, being the offensive player, and they end up turning around and getting to your low side and making a play on the ball, that means they played you two ways. So as an offensive player, I will only allow my player, my defender, to play me one way. If she wants to stay on the high side, I'm going to lock her on the high side and I'm going to extend my other hand and I'm going to be able to get the ball inside. So our players know that that's fine. You can take one thing away from me, but I will not allow you to take something else away from me as well. So that's kind of our interpretation of you will not be beat. You can try and take this away, but you're not going to beat me in the other uh, areas. Yeah, It's hard to do it the way I was taught. You know, being 30 years into the future, it's uh, it's a different kind of uh, different kind of atmosphere. The things that my coach could tell me, I can't tell them. So you know, we got to be careful with that. But this is our interpretation. You can take one thing from me, but you can't take everything, and I'm not going to allow you to. Yeah, and that's that's the thing about basketball. Also, it's it's about having options as a player on the offensive end. You know, defensive end. You know, give and take. Exactly. You know, so yeah, definitely, I definitely like. Uh, where the philosophy is. You know, it's, it's like that with everything. Every team is trying to scout and make sure that they take away your tendencies. You can take away some things. You can't take away everything. So what are you allowing the defense to take away from you? And then what are you doing once they do that? They can't take away everything unless you allow them to take away everything. Mm -hmm. You guys are a couple games away, said you're 8-4. and four. Um, A couple games away from conference play beginning. I believe that starts... January, yeah, January 9th, it looks like, versus East, uh, East Tennessee. But uh, yes. you got got a couple more games left. You got Appalachian State, uh, Lenoir, Rhine, and Concord uh, for those yeah. last three games. But uh, as far as conference play is concerned, you know, last year was your uh, first year with the program. Uh, can you talk about how, you know, conference play and how much of – another beast it may be in the schedule? Absolutely. The Southern Conference is one of these conferences that is sneaky strong. They may not get as much uh, publicity as the ACC or SEC, with, you know, and it makes sense. But they are. A, it, this is a very strong conference, very strong. And we have teams such as Mercer who are, were dominating this conference for the last two years, Wofford is really good. Furman is very good. Teams like Chattanooga, ETSU, Samford has a new coach, and they're going to be good. Western Carolina, same thing, new coach, they're going to be good. It's, it's a very 
difficult conference. And so everything leading up to it, you're trying to stay alive and stay healthy and, and have a good preparation going into conference play. And I do believe our schedule this year was very tough. And we've won some games that not a lot of people thought we were going to win on the road. And, and we beat Wake Forest at Wake Forest, which mm -hmm. was a huge win for our program. And so we are getting very excited about conference. We're prepared. This is one of those years where we feel that we can take another step forward. Last year, we were uh, knocked out in the first round of our conference tournament. And this year, we expect to take a step forward. And um, we have the experience. We have players that can take us there. Our staff is, has been together for a couple of years now. We know each other. We're comfortable. We're doing some exciting things over here. So it's a tough conference. We're ready for it. You definitely have to bring your A game. This is not uh, non-conference play. This is the real deal. And these teams are so familiar with one another. Coaching staffs are so familiar with one another. It's much harder to do that. It's kind of like the NBA playoffs, right? You, you have so much familiarity with the roster, with the tendencies, with what plays they run. Everyone has each other's play calls. So we're, we're just a bunch of magicians trying to entertain each other, right? Yeah. Everybody knows each other's tricks. So uh, it becomes a lot more difficult to, to succeed in that kind of an environment. There's a small margin of error, and you have to bring your A game. Conference play is the real deal. So... Uh, with that said, um, you know, with the travel and everything that happens in conference play, is there anything that you do for your team to to prepare them for each game as it goes on during uh, during the season? What we've incorporated this year is we're trying to work more on the mental side. Uh, physically, we're going to prepare them in a similar way to each game. We're trying to keep the routines the same. We're trying to eat similar foods, take naps around similar times, and trying to make sure that we have a routine that their body is comfortable with and that they're familiar with. And then mentally, what we want to do this year is we want to put a huge emphasis on the positive images and the visualization of success. And so what we've incorporated this year is, and especially for, for the post position, and we do it for other positions as well, for other players, is we will edit all of their good plays, all of their makes, all of the charges they take, blocked shots, great assists, and we'll cut down those clips to four or five seconds long. So basically just the point of action. And we will edit those, and we will send those electronically to our players on game day, updated for each game from their last game, so that they can watch a five, six-minute uh, montage basically of all of their good actions on game day. They can kind of see the ball go through the net. They can see their celebrations. They can see their one more pass, their assists, their charges. And to go into the game on game day with such positive imagery of you doing good things, we feel that it gave them almost an unfair advantage because they go into the game so positive. They know in their minds that they have done these things before and what they look like. They can relive those moments and those, you know, endorphins in your body that get released when you relive good memories. It's uh, it's something really cool, and and we see we 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 definitely enjoy the dividends of that on game day. We've had some some very good feedback from our players with that, so we're going to continue to do that 
So just trying to keep them positive, trying to keep them loose, trying to keep the routine the same. And, uh, and yeah, positivity and, and visualization is, is huge for us this year. That's awesome. Yeah, well, I mean, Coach, good, good luck for the rest of the season. Uh, I want to move forward now with yeah. uh, some NBA talk. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, of course, you being located out in North Carolina, I wanted to talk about the Charlotte Hornets and uh, just the season that they're having. They are currently 13-20, and 20, right now ninth in the Eastern Conference. So they're creeping. They're creeping for a playoff spot still very early in the year. But one specific player that the Charlotte Hornets have, uh, a fellow by the name of Devontae Graham, has come up <laughs> averaging 19 points a game, 7.5 assists, and has really come into his own in this in his second year for the Hornets. Uh, what, what can you say about his play on the court so far this year? First of all, not bad for a second-round pick, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty good. Devontae, I, you know, I, I wish I had a chance to watch more of the Hornets. It's, it's mostly uh, watching my scouts during the season, but I did get a chance to watch a few of their games. Uh, he is shaping up to be their point guard of the future. I know they brought in Terry Rozier from the Celtics with that kind of mindset of maybe grooming him to be the face of, of the franchise and become that point guard. Devontae Graham just stepped in and said, you know what? I'm doing this too. And I'm, I'm going to step up and do my thing. They're, they're a year apart. They're pretty much the same height, the same weight. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's just amazing. Uh, I, I felt, and a lot of people around here felt like Devontae Graham is going to eventually turn into this guy that is producing those 20.7 assists, one that was going to be in his second year. He is definitely taking steps forward. It almost feels like a, like a, a one-year experience, the Donovan Mitchell kind of situation that, you know, that we had last year in, in Utah. And uh, he is a, he's a special guy, so explosive, just able to do so many different things. He's had some monstrous games. He's a very good shooter. I think he's currently around 40% from three or something like that. Mm -hmm. His percentages yeah. are off the charts. His effective field goal percentage, I'm looking at it right now, is 50% 50, 50 for a guard. That is, uh, that is very good. So he has definitely taken some huge steps forward in, in taking the reins on this team. It's, it's beautiful to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he was also a four-year player at Kansas now, what what's your take uh, against taking the four year player, the four year college player out of the draft as opposed to the special one and done player coming out of college that has a lot of upside? I think it, I think it's a case by case situation. Um, you know, playing for Bill Self, you can be ready after two minutes, and you'll be going to the pros, and you'll already have so much basketball IQ, and you have learned so much. So I think coming in after four years, Devontae was ready to go. He's very talented, very smart. Again, played four years in a great system for a great coach. It's a safe bet. I don't understand how he slipped all the way to the second round. I know a lot of, a lot of uh, execs are sitting around right now thinking, what did I do? What have <laughs> I done? But uh, I, think, I think it depends. It's a case-by-case -case system. 
it's something weird that always happens with Kentucky guys. Okay. Their numbers in the NBA are much better than their numbers in Kentucky. So I think playing for coach Cal is awesome and it's great, but his system is not really conducive to players to have um, unreal numbers. I mean, Anthony Davis is one thing. Not everybody's Anthony Davis, but players like Malik Monk coming out of there and PJ Washington, who's having a very good season, their numbers in the NBA are better than their numbers in Kentucky for the most part. So it's almost like a, a, a Kentucky bump. When you get out of there and you go to the NBA, it translates a lot better in the NBA. So I think that's that's a big reason why I'm saying it's a case-by-case situation. It just depends on the player, depends on the coach and the system. Whoever thought that Damian Lillard is going to be Damian Lillard? Yeah, uh, coming out of Weber coming, State. Coming out of Weber, right. So it's it's uh, it's it, to me it's a it's a case by case kind of situation. Yeah, and, and their coaching staff currently, the role that they have on their team, the teammates that they have, everything kind of falls together and and works itself out. Some players get better in the NBA. Some players get worse. Like you know, like we kind of talked about right now i do think there's so many factors into it so it's it's kind of hard to predict that's why these guys are getting paid millions to figure out who to draft right yeah <laughs> uh with that said uh the nba they just submitted uh some they just sent team proposals for season changes for the 2021 2022 season in which the the proposal included a 78 game regular season an in-season tournament and play-in tournaments for the 7th and 8th playoff seeds as well as a reseed of the final four playoff teams in the playoffs based on regular season records uh initially i know that was a lot to take in <laughs> yeah but uh what do you think about adam silver's initiative to kind of change things up and I guess in his eyes, in my eyes also, I kind of, kind of see it as he's trying to find a way to improve the game and improve the league. Well, what are your takes on that? First of all, I think it's really important to give credit where credit's due. The NBA for many, many, many years was not open to any kind of big changes like that, and I think it's refreshing, and I think it's. Uh, it's 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 a show of great faith towards the players who drive this league and telling them, hey, we are listening, we are open, we want to see how we can best serve you and this game. And so I think that in itself is something worth celebrating. Um, it, it would consider Some people would consider this blasphemous 10 years ago. So it's great. And I think Adam Silver and his staff have done a great job having those ears open and perked up and listening to what the players are saying. They might not do everything, but they do listen and they take that into consideration. So that to me is a great thing, just having that open communication. I love that they're looking to shave four games. I think that's a good start. I think where I would love for the season to end up being a few years from now is 72 games. Um, and the reason I say that is I think the last 10 or 15 games of the season for teams that are either locked into the playoffs and their seating isn't going to change or teams that are completely in the lottery, I think they're not really playing hard. There's nothing to play for. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of teams are getting rested. A lot of, sorry, a lot of players are getting rested. And so there isn't a lot of value in the last 10 games of the season. So I do think four is a great start. I think we'll see a difference. And, and who knows, maybe it'll save an Achilles or two uh, throughout the season. Yeah, absolutely. So, 
Yeah, that that would be the major thing. I think uh, just help taking away some of that strain on the body that NBA players continue to go through season after season. And Absolutely. I think they've seen what happened to the Golden State Warriors at the end of their run last year. KD went down. Clay went down. And it's like, oh, my God. You know, and you think about it. They've played 100 games, close to 100 games a year for the past couple of seasons. And it's like, yeah, the strain on the body, physically and mentally, uh, plays a lot into, you know, current performance. Absolutely. And, and traveling and yep. Yep. Uh, not being family, those are things that affect your mental state, your physical state as well. You wake up in a different city every other day. Those are things that add up. And, and you know, you, you know when you're not, when you're stressed out because you haven't seen family in two weeks because you're on the road, you don't eat as well, you don't sleep as well, then you're tired and then injuries happen everything kind of ties together. So I do think those four games are great. And, you know, the biggest words we hear right now are load management. Everybody's trying to figure out how to make sure that they make it to the finish line in one piece. Four games is huge. And it will take away some of that issue of, I just bought a hundred dollar ticket with my son and LeBron is not playing because he's being load managed. And I didn't know about this. And I came all this way to see LeBron and he's not playing. That will take some of that away. So I think that's a great thing. I love the play-in tournament. I think I think you kind of increase the uh, the stakes in in trying to to get those teams to play in and, and see if maybe maybe you're not tanking as much because you can sneak in and, and play and, and get that extra playoff revenue. And we've seen we've seen eight seeds knock off one seeds in the past. So anything can happen. I do like my most favorite part of this is the reseeding. I think the East and West conferences should have no bearing on the playoffs. I think it should be one through eight and let's go. And whoever those teams are, let's just go. Let's play the best teams against one another. I don't think if the East is weak or the West is weak, I don't think we want to see a weak finals. We want to see the best two teams play. And I don't care if they're coming from the East or they're coming from the West. Let's just go. Let's just get the best two teams to play each other. And I think that will just, I think that will make the game a lot more competitive and it will bring some new fans in. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the the play-in uh, for the seventh and eighth seeds, you know, a lot of it, teams are going to be you know, less likely to tank. But when you look at it, a lot of matchups, different matchups are going to, you know, tie into, oh, if we can get into the play-in, for the seventh or eighth seed and face so-and-so team face this team. We got, we got ourselves a chance, you know, and I think also with the direction that the league is heading into where in a sense, yeah, they're moving towards more of this international style of play, high uh, pace, a lot more possessions, a lot more spread out and a big emphasis on the three point ball. Yeah, Absolutely. Any team can defeat any team on any given night. With all these changes, also, I feel like uh, it's 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 a very uh, it's a very dip my foot into the water and test the temperature out. Uh, I was <laughs> I was always I'm probably one of the biggest advocates for a one through sixteen seed playoff format. 
where it's just you take the 16 best teams, regardless of conference, just 16 best records, and have them face off. One versus 16, two versus 15, and a playoff that way, and we'll see who comes out on top. Absolutely. I, that, yeah, exactly. Like I said, you know, just get those get those eight matchups going, and let's keep going from there and just see what happens. It's it's. I think that's the best way to play. You want to play the best. You don't want to just kind of sneak in and uh, and and have some games that nobody cares about. Nobody really watches the first round unless you're a fan of that team. Yeah. So I think it'll bring a little bit more intrigue and and people will enjoy that. Hopefully, hopefully the Golden State Warriors will get a little bit healthier going into next year. So I want to see them back there. I'm. I'm not a Charlotte Hornets fan. I grew up a Knicks fan, and before you kick me off the podcast, <laughs> I, I appreciate the Golden State Warriors. I have some. I have a lot of love for them. I have a lot of love for the Spurs. I love. I love that that style of play of sharing the ball and doing all that. Uh, my Knicks haven't been doing that in the past few years. Hopefully, they can write that ship, but we'll see. Hey, your Knicks. Your Knicks got a game off my Golden State Warriors. Uh, what was it? <laughs> Uh, a week ago, a week and a half ago, I believe. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's all good. I think they're a very tough team with the players that they have on the roster, you know, with Marcus Morris, with Bobby Portis, with Taj Gibson, and also just very talented with guys like Dennis Smith Jr. and R.J. Barrett. So I think the Knicks... They have a lot of... They have a lot of growing to do. They have a lot of... They need to get a lot of things situated on their end with the roster and, and the direction that yeah. they want to go in. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, if, if there's a profile or identity for this team, I'll say they're tough. They're a tough team. Yeah, I, I think you hit on that. I think they do struggle with identity. I'm not sure if they want to have some kind of a youth movement or they want to just be one of those teams that have, has a lot of veterans. I don't think they can be the the latter. I think they do need to go all, all in on youth and see what they have there. They had some high draft picks that they're not really invested in. I mean, Milikina isn't really getting any runs, so you either move on from him or you actually let him play. Dennis Smith Jr. came into Dallas, but then um, he is a high draft pick, so you got to roll the dice on him. Alfred Payton is he of the franchise? I'm not sure. I don't know if they are. They have to figure out their, their front office. They have to figure out their coaching situation. There's a big mess over there right now, and I wouldn't want to have to, you know, the, to, to hold the broom, but they have to figure out what's going on because uh, if they don't, they're going to let another season squander, and that's just not good for anyone. Yeah. Um, what are your takes on, I know these rumors have come up uh, probably within the past year or so, but – what what are your thoughts about James Dolan selling the team? I don't think a lot of people in New York would shed a tear over that, to be honest. I think James Dolan may be well-intended, but he has proven himself to undermanage this team and not really know what he's doing. I think I think at the end of the day, you look at this team you can't really say that there's a clear identity. He's not been very good at hiring coaches that make sense. Kurt Rambis could be a good coach, but he did not make sense that system. Derek Fisher was brought in because Phil Jackson was a GM, so Derek Fisher is familiar with the triangle offense. 
but didn't want to coach it. It's a whole mess. And then Fisdale might have been a good hire, but I don't know if everything clicked the way they wanted it to. It's just to me, it just shows lack of direction. And when you are the one, when the buck stops with you, you have to be um, a little bit better at, at, at your job. And I just don't think he's done a great job, to be honest. So I think if there's an opportunity for him to sell and get out, I think he should. Whether or not that's going to happen, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet my house on it. I don't think he's going any t- anytime soon. I think he loves owning this team. I think he loves um, that people know he owns this team. That's it. I, I don't think it means that much to him other than that. So I'm, I'm very pessimistic about him leaving, to be honest. Yeah, if only, if only New York was able to show him the same love he feels for all those reasons that you just mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think I think it's time for a new face. I don't think it can get much worse. But then again, I'm surprised every year. So yeah, I just hope better. I don't know. It's uh, it's kind of hard to see where the light at the end of this tunnel is. It's been hard. It's been really hard to be a Knicks fan. I, I was I was such a Charles Oakley fan, and to see how he was treated yep. a few years back. Yep kind of irked me i cannot believe that happened and ever since that day i uh i'm kind of taken i've taken two or three steps back and i'm I'm more of a knicks observer yeah and kind of just keeping track but not really uh not really in it like you once were exactly let's just say i was uh i was you know swinging the towel a lot more when uh when golden state was in the finals and trying to make that these guys were feeling the love and the support more than 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 the Knicks because I just couldn't I couldn't bear to watch it anymore. It was hard to watch. Yeah, it just didn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, we could we could sit around and and bash the New York Knicks for as long <laughs> as we can. I'm sure we can. I'm sure we could sit here for another hour on top of what we've just talked about today. <clears throat> on that note, uh, we're gonna go ahead and end it out here. Uh, Ido, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule and chopping it up with me on the Swish Bees podcast. It's much appreciated, man. I love it. And I love the podcast name, by the way. I know I told you that before. That I love that name. So uh, keep it up. Keep up the great work. Anytime you want to talk some basketball and catching the Knicks, I'm up for it. <laughs> uh, yeah, happy to do it. Thank you so much. I appreciate the conversation. Uh, thank you, Ido. Hey, uh, happy holidays to you and your family. Uh, hope the holiday season goes well for you. Good luck to you and the team for the rest of the season. Uh, I'll be looking for more updates uh, once conference play starts. And uh, just keeping track of you guys' performance and seeing how you're doing. Sounds good. And, uh, yeah, happy holidays to you and to everyone else listening. Enjoy. Be safe out there. All right, Ido. You take care. Thank you.